Area 941 podcast are produced and distributed by Community Powered 94.1 KPFA Radio. Please help support Area 941 at kpfa.org. This is the Area 941 Radio Walensky Podcast. I'm your host, Richard Walensky. We're talking about books, about theater, about film, and sometimes about politics. Most of these interviews were originally conducted for KPFA's Bookwaves program and its predecessor, Probabilities. Jan Morris, who died at the age of 94 on November 20, 2020, was a noted travel writer and historian and a leading figure in the trans world. Richard A. Lupoff and I interviewed her twice, the first time on August 8, 1999, while she was in San Francisco for a conference, and here now, the second time, on November 16, 2001, while on tour for what was being billed as her final book, Trieste and the Meaning of Nowhere. As James Morris, she accompanied Edmund Hillary on the first expedition to the summit of Mount Everest before and after her transition in 1964 to the time of her death, Jan Morris wrote 18 travel books, six history books, including a three-volume history of the British Empire, eight memoirs, including the best-selling Conundrum, two novels, and 12 collections of essays. This interview was digitized, remastered, and edited in November 2021. This is Richard A. Lupoff. And I'm Richard Walensky, and our guest is Jan Morris, whose latest book is Trieste and the Meaning of Nowhere. Jan Morris, why the meaning of nowhere? Well, first, because it's a good title, isn't it? The best part of the book is the title, Trieste and the Meaning of Nowhere. It's partly because I want to make clear that this book isn't a travel book. It's anything but a travel book. It's, it's a sort of meditation upon the existence of the city of Trieste and its effect upon me throughout my life. It's a contemplation rather than a description. And because I think of Trieste as being some something separate from the world at large, I chose this title, the meaning of nowhereness being associated with Trieste down the generations. As a matter of fact, it's not my own first idea. The last time we chatted together, you mentioned that in a sense your your career started in Trieste in 1946, because now we're talking about a 55-year relationship between you and this city. What was 1946? Why was that significant to you? Well, because I was a young soldier at the time, and I arrived in Trieste out of Italy on our way to my regiment was being moved to the Middle East, and we lingered around in Trieste for several months, and it was the first city of any kind, really, I'd ever spent any time in as an adult. I wasn't very adult. <laughs> you know, I was 19, I think. But it was the first big city I'd ever got to know at all. And it was a foreign city, of course. It was a very European city. And it raised in my mind all sorts of dreamy imaginations, nostalgic imaginations for a Europe that I imagined had existed before the war, before the Second World War and which I thought was still flickeringly alive in the city of Trieste. In a way, I was right, too. I, that, although my nostalgia obviously was phony because I didn't remember any of it. <laughs> Nevertheless, what I imagined of Europe in that dream of mine was sort of fulfilled 
in Trieste, which hadn't been very badly damaged during the war and was still pursuing the sort of life that I wanted Europe to be pursuing, to living. Over those years, 55 years, did you ever actually live in Trieste for any length of time? No, not for any length of time. Lots of weeks and two weeks and that sort of thing. Fortunately, living as I do in Europe, all I have to do is jump in the car, go through the tunnel under the channel, and I'm there anyway. <laughs> so I, I don't need to. And uh, also, I know the place well. I've, I've had varying times, periods of living in Trieste, staying in Trieste. I'm going back again in January. It's, it's so easy and so close. Jan Morris, let's talk a little about Trieste. It's located not far, what, 90 miles from Venice, sort of on the cusp of Italy and Yugoslavia, and yet it is neither in origin Italian nor Yugoslavian, but it's Austrian. Not in origin. In sense. In yes, that's right, in a sense, because, well, it existed, of course, for aeons before, inhabited by hazy tribes of one sort and another, but it really came into modern existence at the end of the 18th century when it had been under the control of the Habsburg Empire in Vienna for some time. But at that time, they decided they would create on this spot a port, a southern outlet for the whole of their Central European Empire, and therefore the port above all of Vienna. Trest was very well suited for that. It was in the right place. It was at the top of the Adriatic Sea. And so they quite deliberately made an ad hoc imperial port on this site. And they encouraged all sorts of people to come in from all over Europe and also from Africa too. A whole frenzy of, of cosmopolitan peoples, one sort or another, who brought their own skills and tastes and languages and traditions and origins and hopes and loyalties to this place, thereby making it from the very start something rather special in Europe. But as you say, it had a much longer prehistory, if you will. How far back have you been able to trace this city as any sort of settlement or village or or whatever? I haven't even tried. I'm bored <laughs> by prehistory. <laughs> I'm only interested in Trieste, which came into being under the Habsburgs. But from what I've read in books, you know, I know that uh, there were some uh, Illyrians, the people, Indo-Celtic peoples who, who started it as a fishing port. The Romans came there. The Venetians several times took it. And uh, uh, that went on for century after century until it all became clear. The Habsburgs came in and I became interested. Why was Trieste important in 1946? Because of its situation. It was Churchill in, in defining the Iron Curtain, which separated communist Europe from non-communist Europe said that line stretched from Stettin on the Baltic to Trieste. It was, the, it was the southern end of the Iron Curtain. And because, of course, it faced south and west, it was a very important place for both sides. The, the west wanted to hang on to it. Yugoslavia, which was then communist under Tito, coveted it. They thought it was rightly theirs. The Russians certainly would like to have had it as a warm water port on the Mediterranean. And so it was sort of tossed around between the people. For a time, it was a free territory, you know, under the United Nations. But that didn't work. It collapsed under the pressures of the Cold War. And it was only in 1954, several years after the Second World War, that they finally decided what it should be, to wit, that the city proper and the port should go to Italy. And the, all the surroundings, quite close in, 
the countryside around should go to Tito's Yugoslavia. But then, of course, the Yugoslavia collapsed too. So <laughs> exactly. Now it's, uh, it's still connected with Italy by a sort of umbilical cord along the coast, but very close. It's hemmed in very close around by Slovenia, and Croatia is just a few miles away. What to you is the importance to Jan Morris of Trieste? In our last interview, when we were talking about the cities that you most loved, you mentioned Trieste. You've written several times about Venice, and of course you've written about Wales. You've written about several cities, Hong Kong. But there's something for you that's very special about Trieste, and it's why this book exists today. There is. It isn't only special for me, I have to say. A lot of people are affected by Trieste in the very same way as I have been. And I'm constantly coming across people, in particular, who ended up there at the end of the Second World War and who were subject to the same rather peculiar spell that I have been. But people who've never been there before, who go there now, are never quite certain what their responses are. There's something suggestive about the place, something opaque or rather mysterious, and they come away not quite knowing what kind of a place they've been to. Sometimes, of course, they, they don't know what country they've been in. <laughs> but but even people, better informed people, come away with this misty feeling of mystery about it. What is that misty feeling? I think it comes out of history, really. I think it comes out of the fact that for just for one century and a half, I suppose, Trieste was fulfilled as a great port. And it was a very great port, one of the great ports of the whole world. And it flourished and was famous and was admired and was rich and had a very cultivated, creative community of people living there, notably Jews, who in many ways set the style of Trieste then and for me set the style of it to this day. But that only lasted until the end of the First World War when the Habsburg Empire collapsed and Trieste was left on a limb because it was uh, it lost its hinterland. It could no longer be the, the port of the whole of of Central Europe. It was just another Italian port. They had lots of other ports too. They weren't all interested in Trieste. And so it sort of floundered. During my time in particular, but really for most of the century, Trieste has floundered, not quite sure itself what it was or what it was going to be or what it wanted to be. It was always thinking about its past. And it was very proud of itself and exceptionally fond of itself. It's a very, it's a, it's a city of great civic pride. And so that feeling of misty uncertainty, you know, is what I think makes gives people like me this feeling. I'm very susceptible to all these things. I like melancholy. I, I'm interested <laughs> in the end of empires. I, I like poignancy. All that kind of stuff suits me in particular. But it seems to suit many other people too, and especially, I think, people who want to disappear or, or want to be less transparent. They, they, they want to be slightly misty themselves. So many writers have found Trieste a suitable place to go. There was a famous poem by Browning, What's Become of Waring. Do you remember the poem? It's about a, a London man about town who got fed up with the world, as so many of us do from time to time, do we not? And who vanished from London society and nobody saw him until somebody else sailing into Trieste on a ship saw Waring in a bumboat with some young rogue from Trieste trying to sell things to the passing ships. And that was Waring, the sophisticated London man about town who'd found where he wanted to be, lost up the Adriatic in the Bay of Trieste. What, what was James Joyce's experience in Trieste? Well, he went there purely to get a job. You probably know, he went to teach at the Bellet School of Languages Speak English. 
and he was there for some years. Uh, he was very fond of it. He, he became very friendly with the, his pupils and with the families of his pupils, who were mostly cultivated business people, uh, cult cultured business people, many of them Jewish. And he liked them and got on well with them. And he also liked the Habsburg Empire. You know, he thought it was very charming. And he enjoyed himself in Trieste, but in the end, the, the, the First World War came, he had to leave anyway. And also, while he was there, like most of us, there was something about it that made him want to be somewhere else. It's, it's, a, it's an unsatisfactory place in many ways, Trieste. It has these nagging feelings about it. When he was there, he rather wanted to be somewhere else, but when he was away, he rather wanted to be back in Trieste. It's, it's one of the gifts of this city, I think. Did the Jewish community in Trieste survive World War II? No, hardly at all, because it survived the fascists re relatively well. And as a matter of fact, Trieste became a chief port of exit for Jews all over Europe who wanted to get either to Palestine or to America. And for a time, it was, it was nicknamed the Port of Zion. But uh, to begin with, not many of the Trieste Jews themselves wanted to go. They were okay as they were. Uh, under the fascists, they didn't do too badly, as a matter of fact. But the Nazis came, of course, and then things changed. And in fact, it was the only place in Italy where there was an exter extermination camp. The Nazis didn't recognize it as being in Italy, as a matter of fact. They said it was part of the Reich from the very beginning. When Italy got out of the war, made peace with the West, the Nazis immediately moved in Trieste and declared it part of the Reich and set up this horrible extermination camp where the remains of Trieste Jewishness mostly failed, mostly disappeared. What about today? Trieste is an Italian city politically, but is it Italian in, in culture, in nature, in language? What language do they speak in Trieste? They mostly speak Italian, but it is officially bilingual, Slovene and Italian. There's, I, I forget the exact figure, it's something like a fifth of the population is, is Slovene, or is Slav anyway, because they're not all Slovenes, they're Croatians as well. Uh, and the, the city, I think if you went there, you'd think it's an Italian city, as a matter of fact. But the more you explore it, the more you look into it, and the more you look at people's faces too, the more you realize that it's something much more than that. And, and the further you go out of the center of the city, the more Slav it feels. The suburbs outside, as you get into the countryside, feel more and more Balkan. And indeed, when you get out into the countryside, into the highlands which surround it, it's entirely Balkanesque. And the language is still mostly Slovene. Since the war in Yugoslavia ended, is there a change in Trieste? No, I don't think terrifically so. The great change happened after the Second World War, when the, the surrounding countryside was taken away from Trieste, in particular the, the peninsula of Istria, which is now called just Istra, I think, everything's changed its name there. That was essential to the character of Trieste, really. It was, it was its private peninsula, and the, um, the cities around the coast were populated mostly by Italians ever since the Venetians had founded their seaports along that coast. And when that was taken away from Trieste, some great sense of deprivation entered the city's feeling, which is, in my opinion, has never quite got over. Heaps and heaps of refugees came out of Istria then and now live in Italy. And the old ones among them, I'm told, are still um, determinedly anti-Slav and they still 
have some bitter recriminations, quite understandably, because they had to leave their homes. But no, I don't think the Yugoslav war, the recent Yugoslav war, has made an awful lot of difference to the character of the city. Jan Morris, you have stated that this is your last book. Why? Well, I haven't said it's my last book. I've said it's the last book I'm going to publish because I'm fed up with the whole brouhaha of publishing. I don't like the publishing industry anymore. I don't like doing radio interviews, <laughs> except, of course, <laughs> in <the> present circumstances. <laughs> I'm tired of the whole relationship between literature and showbiz, which seems to be becoming more and more the norm. And I've come to agree with Flaubert, who said that uh, for a writer, publishing books was an unworthy occupation. That's a joke. <laughs> in your book, Trieste and the Meaning of Nowhere, you describe a region which I had never even heard of, something called the Karst. Mm. I have a number of questions about that. The first being, what is a Karst? It isn't a caste. It's the caste, or it's just caste, because it's gone into the language. As I'm, I, Believe me, I'm no expert on this. <laughs> I, I don't know anything about geology at all. But I do know that from the particular ridge of limestone mountains, hills rather, immediately outside Trieste, surrounding Trieste, the word caste has been evolved by German geologists, I believe. It was the caste. And now Karstian geology applies all over the world. But anyway, the caste in this particular context means this ridge, a plateau really, a low plateau, immediately surrounding Trieste. To get anywhere out of Trieste, except Italy along the narrow coastal passage, you have to cross the caste. And it's a very strange, rather disconcerting bit of countryside. It's, of course, because it's so close, it's gradually been suburbanized, but it is still very odd. It's flinty, it's full of potholes, it's a wild country. It has warlike memories of partisans fought ferociously all over it during the Second World War. It has bitter memories, it has powerful people, with a sort of hint of the savage to it all. So it's it's exact opposite to Trieste, which is essentially a bourgeois, cosmopolitan bourgeois city, well-ordered, kind, the whole thing still to this day goes pretty well. But you have just to go up this hill to feel yourself in something quite different, a, a different sensibility altogether. Do you have uh, the autostrada running through there and stone villages or shopping centers? What's it like now? The autostrada does go sort of across the cast, but it's quite separate from it. You don't feel that. No, you don't have any shopping malls and things like that still. It goes whizzing across and disappears somewhere into the Balkans, you know. <laughs> <laughs> and around it, this pothole place still festers and goes on and eats its raw ham and drinks <laughs> its rough wine. And then and, and you find me sitting there doing the same and imagining crimes I'd like to commit. Because it's just a place for aspirant anarchists like me, you know. But it sounds as if you could travel just a, a half a dozen miles and you'd be 500 or 1,000 years ago. I, I'm exaggerating. I don't think you'd think that. But you'd find yourself in a very different climate. I mean, you know, a historical climate or a social climate from Trieste itself. It's, I, I know of nowhere whose, whose immediate countryside is so different from the focus of the city than the karst Trieste. Is there antipathy between the, the people who dwell in the karst and people who dwell in the city? 
Well, I suppose there was when between Slavs and Latins, Slovenes in particular, and Latins, but I I don't think there is very much now. And as a matter of fact, many Triestini prefer to go and live in the cast and commute into the city each day. So it's getting a bit more ordinary now. I, I exaggerate these things. I, well, <laughs> you, you spoke of, of the cultural and political climate, but what about the actual physical climate? What is the weather like in the city of Trieste, and what is it like up on the karst? I don't think it's very different from up on the karst, but the, it's the 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 climate of Trieste is distinctive. It's 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 rather disturbing, as a matter of fact. It's rather disconcerting. The wind climate, in particular, the wind. Yes, but even in the summer, I suppose it's something to do with being at the top of the Adriatic, which is more or less a fjord, isn't it, out of the Mediterranean. So it feels there's something something sort of hushed about it. The sea always seems to me to be brooding. It isn't a very lively, stimulating climate is a very, very interesting one and a suggestive one, but it isn't very exciting, except when several times during every winter this mighty wind comes howling out of the out of the mountains and sweeps its way through trees, blowing all these about toppling trees over. It used to knock railway wagons over, as a matter of fact. Uh, I love it because I like excesses of nature. <laughs> but nevertheless, uh, it, everybody finds, well, not everybody, lots of people find, that when it's blown its way through, you're left with sort of empty feeling, something rather disconcerting. I think it was Stendhal who said it was rheumatism of the entrails, <laughs> a pretty awful condition. And I always think that, uh, uh, you know, several millennia of suffering this thing several times every winter must surely have some effect on the personality of the city and its people. Is there snow and ice there? There is sometimes, I think. I've never experienced it myself, but I think there is. There, just as there is in Venice along the coast. Jan Morris, I'd like to talk a little bit about your your broader career, of which this sits as perhaps the last published work, because one never knows. You say in Trieste, it's it's a city of regret, but no regret at the same time. And I, I get the sense that, you know, there there's a sense of regret in you, but there's nothing that you would necessarily regret in your life. The question for you then is, is there any book that you wish you'd written that you never got around to? There's a whole corpus of books I wish I'd written and I never got around to because I've always regretted that I didn't from the start engage myself in fiction, really. I, I regard fiction as a higher form of art than fact and I've done my best to combine the two to make sure that the, these books aren't purely factual. Nevertheless, I think I would feel even more fulfilled if I had from the beginning gone in for writing novels, I've only written two, one and a half really, and I would like to have written them, or maybe I will. How about a book that you would like to rewrite? Uh, because I'd do it better next time, you mean? Oh, yeah. Um, <laughs> <laughs> or, that, or that, you know, it, this, there's uh, a lot of, of artists now who no longer feel that when a book is finished, or a play, or a film that it's finished and they could always go back and improve it. Is there anything you look at and you say, my God, not that I, just that I would do it differently now, but if I could improve it, this is what I'd do. Somebody asked me this question in America last year, I think. They said, uh, talking about the Pax Britannica books I've yeah. done about the British Empire, they said, would you do it differently now? And I replied off the top of my head shamelessly, no, I think they're absolutely perfect. <laughs> <laughs> I don't think all my books are absolutely perfect, 
But I don't know that there's one in particular that I'd want to do again, that I, I regret little bits of them, I regret phrases, but I think, no, I forgive me, I'm conceited, but I think I'm quite happy with the corpus as it stands. Jane Morris, I got a, a feeling, in fact, Richard Walensky and I were debating this because he didn't get the feeling at all uh, from reading Trieste and The Meaning of Nowhere that that you had somehow sensed that history had come to an end, that the great drama had closed and the world was entering a new phase uh, during just the few months between writing this book and, of course, the present present day in November 2001, uh, the world has been completely turned upside down. I'd like you to comment on that, if you would. Yes, well, one perceptive critic in London, to my, in my opinion, said that this book was not only an elegy for me, which it is, of course, quite deliberately so, but is also an elegy for the modern world. Exactly. And in, in a way it is, because... Uh, that's why I call it the, the meaning of nowhere, you know, because I've come, I'm disillusioned, like most of us really, by the modern world, and I've come to dream of another world altogether, a fourth world, a diaspora of people who have the same values and the same humors and the same aspirations and who form a kind of invisible minority nation. They'll always be in a minority. The majority is always wrong, as we all know, don't we? <laughs> There'll always be a minority nation, which I think of as a diaspora of people of the same sort, the same kind, the same sort of values. And because Trieste is itself a city on its own, a sort of minority city among the cities of the world, I've come to think that this is a suitable capital for this mighty nation that doesn't exist, that is the nation of nowhere. I've been. I've just been around the world on a trip for Granta magazine in, in London and in New York, and I was searching for the new zeitgeist, you know, which is quite a different zeitgeist from mine. I'm a person of the 20th century, and I was quite satisfied with my zeitgeist. I thought things were going well, as most of us did. Really, awful things happened, of course, as they do in every age. I mean, there was AIDS, AIDS there was Vietnam, there was atom bombs, you name it. But nevertheless, I thought, on the whole, progress still counted. Progress was okay. On the whole, things were getting better. It was the Chardin called it inferling of the peoples of the world. I thought that was really happening. I thought we were all growing closer to each other. We were learning to live with each other. We perhaps even grew, grew fond of each other. Uh, and I, I was, it was an optimistic time for me, despite... And I spent the whole half century wandering the world writing about it and thinking about it. And that was the conclusion I reached. At the end of this journey, I felt rather differently. Wherever I'd been, people were, were unhappy. In fact, they weren't content with the way the world were going. They felt they were being turned into some other sort of people that they didn't want to be. They felt that they were being jammed together in some way, that the, the idea of multi-ethnicity, multiculturalism, wasn't working. They didn't want to be multi-ethnic. I, I felt everywhere from Australia to, to um, Honolulu even. They felt they were being pushed together against their will. And they also felt always that there were some great inchoate powers up there somewhere. They couldn't define them. They were pressing down on them and meant they were no longer private people. They, nobody was private anymore. There was always somewhere in the sky. Even the email, even the internet, 
You know, it was like somebody coming into your household, talking in another language. Even to the, to us speaking English, it speaks American. This internet, I, I think, came up on my screen the other day. It said, "Show your patriotism, buy a flag," and it was the stars and stripes that I was being urged to buy. <laughs> <laughs> I should have been the Red Dragon of Wales, but it wasn't. <laughs> anyway, all these forces pressing down on people made me feel that the world wasn't going right after all. That my old zeitgeist, the spirit of progress, wasn't true, and that progress indeed was proving to be a sort of tyranny. I got back to Wales September 10th, and then very next day, the zeitgeist revealed itself. What you're saying then is this is not an event that changes the zeitgeist, but、And、the symbol of the zeitgeist itself, yes, September 11th. Exactly. Yes, it was declaring itself one. And for me, you know, I'm 75 years old. I've had enough of this, really. I've had enough of progress. <laughs> I'm hoping for progress, and I've come to feel that there's no answer to this thing. A religion doesn't give an answer, in my opinion. It seems to me that the greatest minds down the centuries have tried to find the answers to these great questions: What's it all about? What are we going to do with it? And they've invented various forms of mumbo jumbo, one sort and another. From Christianity to Hinduism to Islam, to all of them depend upon faith in some supernatural power, which they've absolutely no notion whether they exist or not, and have no way of proving it, have no way of answering it. And so I've come to think the only thing we can do is simply to consider our own conduct, our own attitude. And I think there's just one commandment which should apply to all of us, and that is be kind. I think kindness. Is the an- the only answer that I can think of to all these things? Even the Dalai Lama, who says kindness is my religion, nevertheless goes on to all kinds of、uh, supernatural jargon about endless circles and stuff like that, doesn't he? You know, he, even he depends upon mumbo jumbo. But my cult that I propose to found, <laughs> which is the Church of Kindness, <laughs> it doesn't depend upon any、uh, belief. It just depends very simply. On a simple principle that anybody can do, anybody can understand. Be kind. If every action you do, you think, where does this stand on the scale of kindness? You, it can't always be near the top. We're all bloody-minded very often and unkind. But if we aim simply to be kind to each other, and to think of kindness as the overriding principle of life, that seems to me as as good an answer as we can get to a world. I must tell you that for. Most of my life, I've sneered at the old farts and the old stiffs who said the world is going to the dark, you know. But at last, I've realised that they're right. One element of Trieste, coming back to this, is that the precept there also appears to be, despite the resentments and the multicultural nature of the city and the resentments that that itself builds, be kind. That that seems to be how people behave in Trieste, and it could be that that draws you to it as well. Yes, of course, that is why I've chosen it as the capital of my nation. <laughs> But I dare say, you know, this is all in my mind. The city is in my mind, half of it. I dare say the city isn't as kind as I think it is.、Uh, the people who I I don't doubt who live there are very often unkind to each other. And, But I think, on the whole, it's as cities go. No Trieste people have disagreed with me about this.、Uh, I only say, as, as cities go, this is about de- as decent a city as you can find on, in the world today. 
Uh, people generally are nice to each other. James Joyce thought they were delightful. Mahler thought they were lovely. He thought they were very nice, and I think they're very nice people too. And if I'd be perfectly content if I had a heart attack in the middle of the Piazza Unita in Trieste, that somebody would look after me and take me away to hospital and cure me, send me home again. I, I think in that way it's a good city. It really is a good city. Now, a, a, a very small question, but I'm curious. What do people who live in Trieste call themselves? They're, they're Londoners, there are Parisians. What is a person who lives in Trieste? A Triestino, a Triestina. Triestina. Hmm. Jan Morris, you've been a writer of travel, but more importantly than that, you've been a historian. I guess, hopefully, when you're a historian, you learn something about the general nature of humanity, where it's gone, and perhaps we get a sense of where it's going. Do you feel like there's this blank white sheet in front of you and you have no idea where it's going? Or do you have some sense of what life will be like on this planet in the next quarter century or half century? Quarter or half century, I think I do. So I think it's going to be continued to be an uncomfortable period. But that isn't very long, is it half a century in the history of the world? Beyond that, that blank wall is what I feel. I just Do you think the world could be coming to an end? I hope I, not. <laughs> I rather hope so. <laughs> <laughs> Why? I think it's had enough of itself. It's overcrowded. That's half the problem to my mind, that there are just simply too many people in the world today. And there's nothing we can do about that. They've just got to go on. They're going to go on procreating. They're going on increasing year by year by year. It's simply going to get worse, as I understand it. And I see no solution to that except to end the whole shoot and have done with it. There are a lot of people who are in their 20s and their teens and younger, and I don't think that that's a very optimistic outlook for them. Tough. Our children and our grandchildren deserve a chance. We may have botched it up. We did. We have. We are. They shouldn't pay the price. No, they shouldn't really. I know, you know, I'm I'm talking not only off the top of my head, but uh, cynically and half seriously. But I don't, I truly don't know the answers, nor do you, nor does anybody else, in my opinion. Just as I say, down the centuries, people have tried to devise an answer for all these problems, and they haven't devised an answer. And I'm sure nobody among us is wise enough to say what it's going to be like in a century's time. I think it'd be foolish to project an idea of him. The Pax Britannica was the 19th century. Would you say the 20th into the 21st is a Pax Americana or something else? I'm not sure I'd use the word Pax, but it's, it has been truly the American century, hasn't it, without any doubt at all. And it now fulfills to this day in many, in some ways the role that the British Empire fulfilled in its time. I mean, when there's uh, lots and lots of stories of, of British individual seamen, captains, or generals intervening in other people's squabbles without being asked, and sometimes ending them, sometimes making it all the worse. But they had, they felt they were doing the right thing. They felt they were God divinely ordained to be the supreme power of the world, and they did it as by their own lights as well as they could. And I think we have to grant to you people the same privileges. <laughs> That's the word. 
you mentioned before disdain for the uh, industry of publishing, but you had also mentioned something before we came on the air about the American versus the British edition of Trieste. I think our listeners would be interested in that. Uh, well, I, I hate to say it, but I think the British edition is very much nicer. It's a it's a subtler approach to the subject. The, this book would imply, perhaps, I think, that it was a book about a city, uh, whereas really it's a book about me and my thoughts about a city. So that the English edition is a much mistier approach. The jacket is different. The letters are put in rather strangely and mysteriously. And throughout the book in the English edition, there are um, rather evocative old photographs of Trieste, which manage, I think, better to give the reader an idea of what kind of a book it's going to be. Jan Morris, you've said this is your last published book, so you're going to keep writing. What do you want to write next? Well, I have to tell you, there is one little book which is coming out next month, as a matter of fact, but it's, it's more a monograph than a book. It's a book in a series of little books which are about writers' favorite places, places they love. And it isn't about Trieste. It's about my house in Wales, and it's called A Writer's House in Wales. And I must tell you, it's supposed to be... The series is 50,000 words books, and quite short, you know. But I thought I couldn't possibly do 50,000 words on my house, so I said, OK, I'll do 30,000 words. And they very nicely said, all right, do that. And then I started to write the book. The house has only got six rooms, so that's 5,000 words room, including the lavatories. <laughs> <laughs> you have to be an old pro to do that, do you not? As you know as well as I do. 5,000 words room. However, it's done. <laughs> it comes out next month. But after that, i tell you what I'm going to do. I'm going to stay at home in Wales part of the time, and I'm going to write something exquisitely beautiful, which I'm going to pluck out of the heavens, and it's going to flow out of me. Beautiful. I write it with a goose quill pen, I think. And it'll be so, so lovely, you can't dream how marvelous it's going to be. And then I'm going to put it under the stairs, among all the other muddle, you know, that there is under the stairs. And there my great-great-grandchildren are going to find it. And they're going to flog it to Random House for a million dollars and live happily ever after. True to her word, Trieste and the Meaning of Nowhere was the last full-length book Jan Morris would write. Collections of new and old essays were published in 2004 and 2010. An illustrated essay on the battleship Yamoto in 2018, and then finally two volumes of late-in-life diaries, the first in 2018 called In My Mind's Eye, and posthumously in January 2021, Thinking Again. My co-host was Richard A. Lupoff, and the interview was recorded on November 16, 2001, in the KPFA studios. Feedback on this and other Radio Walensky podcasts is appreciated. You can write to bookwaves at hotmail.com. You can listen to other interviews, either as Radio Walensky podcasts or in the archives pages of bookwaves.com. Until next time, I'm Richard Walensky on the Area 941 Radio Walensky Podcast. <laughs>